This morning we have the privilege of receiving the word from two great preachers today. Uh, this is Christian and Allison Clore. Let's give them a hand. Let's welcome them. Last time I had them up here, I mispronounced their last name. So I practiced that a lot this week. We're good. Uh, you guys know, have, many of you have known Allison for a long time. She became a part of the church when she was in undergrad at UNC uh, and then stayed a leader throughout her master's degree there at UNC and after. Um, and then Allison began to sense a call to preach and a call to become a pastor. And so we commissioned her. We saw those gifts in her, spoke those gifts uh, spoke encouragement into those gifts and uh, proudly commissioned her to go to Asbury Theological Seminary to study to become a pastor where she met Christian, who was already a pastor. And uh, that's a good combo. All right. And uh, so this summer, actually, Christian was ordained as a minister in the uh, Wesleyan Church denomination. So this is Reverend Christian Clore to you. Thank you very much. All right. So congratulations on that milestone. That's very significant. And Allison is in that process as well of the ordination process with the Wesleyan Church. This summer, uh, they have been doing an internship uh, while they are on break from, from Asbury for the summer from seminary. And um, so they've been leading us in some significant ways. They've been giving leadership to our Wednesday morning prayer time. Uh, they've been giving leadership to Weaver Street on Tuesday nights, which is an informal hangout and connection time for people. Uh, Christian has been learning from members of our church family who are experiencing homelessness and um, has been learning what it means to, to uh, receive ministry and also to give ministry in that context, um, even um, frequently um, sharing meals at the uh, community kitchen nearby. Um, and Allison, as part of her um, study this summer, has been learning about church planting. And so we planted Love Chapel Hill. Uh, it'll be nine years in October. And uh, so Allison has been learning about the experience of planting Love Chapel Hill. She was a part of most of that time. Um, but also learning from other church planters as well. Uh, that's significant because Allison and Christian are sensing a specific calling uh, and, and are discerning that calling, but are, are sensing that possibility of their calling being channeled in that specific direction of planting a church. Um, we see those gifts in them as well and are proud to speak encouragement into that. Um, and so we are honored to have them preach to us today. Uh, this is their last Sunday with us before they head back for another semester of seminary. And so we're going to commission them, as we often do, to pray over our people and to send them out. And uh, normally we do that at the end of the service, but we're going to do that here at the beginning of the sermon. And so we're going to invite everyone who would like to to come up. And to come around them, lay hands on them, and we're going to pray a prayer of commissioning over them. And can you imagine getting to preach after every, that many people praying over you? So this is going to be great. So uh, come on up and, and let's pray a prayer of commissioning over them. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for these friends. Uh, we thank you for their relationship with each other, this, this young marriage, just being married this summer. 
Um, we just thank you so much for what they are learning together through that process, for the way that you are shaping them as individuals and as a couple through that. Uh, we pray over the ministry that you are calling them into and that you have already given them and the way that they are living that out. Thank you for the way that they live that out on the campus of the seminary um, as spiritual leaders of that campus, um, pouring into other people as they are receiving that um, as well. And we thank you for the future ministry that you have planned for them. Uh, we just pray a blessing over that today as their church family uh, we affirm that we say that we agree that they have received that calling from you we can see it we see the fruit of it we see the gifts of it and we just pray that you would continue to amplify that through the power of your spirit that as they step into what is next for them that you would give them a real clarity in that you would give them the patience of discerning um, that you would give them the courage of saying yes when, when your calling becomes clear. And then that you would provide everything that they need as they step into that. We trust you. We know that if you're calling them into it, then you're carving the way out for them. And so we just commission them and we also surrender them to you. And we know that we can trust you to hold them and to keep them and to guide them. So in your name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you all for that. Um, so this morning we're preaching on the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. And uh, the last time we covered the Ten Commandments in this church was a sermon series called Mosaic, if I remember correctly. And it was like back in 2011, 2010. Um, and my only real involvement with ever kind of preaching or uh, the Ten Commandments was when Matt texted me one day being like, hey, can we borrow a whiteboard from the Campus Y uh, for uh, the sermon on Sunday? So I helped steal a whiteboard from the Campus Y on the Sunday that Matt chose to preach on you shall not steal, you shall not murder, um, there was one other one, but, uh, so he got me to drive his truck while he rode in the back of the truck with the whiteboard, and all I could do was just pray, God, please don't let me kill the pastor, please don't let me kill the pastor, because the last thing I wanted to do was not just break one of the Ten Commandments, but two of them all in one Sunday. Um, so, obviously, I'm a sinner just like all of us here, and so um, I don't know about y'all, but I just really need the Lord to kind of help us through this this morning. So if y'all would join with me, we're going to start out in prayer. Father God, we just thank you for bringing us all together in this place. We thank you that we have the freedom to worship you together um, and that we can do so freely and without fear in this country, Lord. We pray for those around the world who are persecuted for their faith. Um, Lord, we ask that you would give us words to speak your truth and your love this morning. And Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear you and eyes to see you and hearts to receive you. 
Lord, set our hearts on fire with love for you. Fill us up with your love so that we are overflowing with it, so that we can truly love Chapel Hill with your heart, God. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Exodus 20 says this, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So to give a little context as to where we are, um, we've been saying all summer long that Exodus begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. This is a small snapshot of the story of God. Last week, uh, we went through God's epic entrance onto Mount Sinai, which is kind of the prelude to today's Ten Commandments. God spoke to Moses to prepare and told him to prepare the people of Israel to encounter God, to hear from him. Matt said last week that um, we are diverse in strength as a people, that we are united as family, and that we are a peculiar people, strange 
yes, odd, perhaps, but truly wholly belonging to him. And absolutely, that's true. God is a holy God, but he's also a God of love. And we see that even more clearly in this passage today. Um, And that leads us up to this week in the Ten Commandments. This is the original Pentecost. Um, Pentecost being, uh, well, in the Christian calendar, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people for the first time. Um, But originally, it was a Jewish, well, and is a Jewish holiday celebrating the giving of the law. And it happens 50 days after the Passover. And so the people of Israel have been wandering around in the desert for 50 days, living off of manna from heaven and quail given by God and water given by God. And this is the first time uh, God is speaking. He's speaking directly to Moses, but this is the first time that the Israelites can hear him. In chapter 19, it says that God is going to speak to Moses, and he wants the people to come to the base of the mountain so that they can hear God speaking. And these are the first words that he, that, that the Israelites hear God speak. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of slavery. His use of the Lord is Yahweh. I am Yahweh, your God. It's his personal name that he's given to the Israelites. This is God revealing himself to his people. And it's interesting that this is the way that he chooses to reveal himself. He doesn't say, I am creator of the universe and everything else is created, including you. That would be stating his power and his almightiness, which he is absolutely all powerful. But that's not how he chose to reveal himself to his people. He doesn't say He doesn't, that's not his primary characteristic. He doesn't say even how he reveals himself to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers, proving that he is the God of history, of all time. He is eternal, and we are not, which he absolutely is, but that's not his primary characteristic. What he says is, I am Yahweh, your God, who led you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's incredibly personal and intimate and loving. Jewish scholars say Yahweh is like breathing. All of the consonants are aspirated. So it's as though you're breathing and saying God's name, Yahweh, Yahweh. So every breath we breathe is praising God. It's an echo back to creation when God first breathed life into Adam and Eve, taking the dust and forming their bodies and breathing life into them. With every breath we breathe, no matter how old or how young we are, we praise God. All of creation praises God.
And it's not just his personal name. He chooses to reveal himself as the God of deliverance. He says that I delivered you from the land of Egypt, from the land of slavery. Our God is the one who hears the cries of slaves and does something about it. He's incredibly compassionate and loving. His mercy and justice combine to form love in a perfect way that only he can do. And so he hears the cries of slaves, he sees oppression, and he comes down to do, to do something about it. And this points to God's identity as that of holy love. Yes, he is holy. Yes, he is other, completely separate. But on top of that, he is love and perfect love, a love that casts out all fear, a love that cannot be broken, that endures forever. And it not, this, this passage doesn't just say what God's identity is, but it also speaks to Israel's identity. The whole point of making a covenant with his people is saying, God is saying, I am your God and you will be my people. I am yours and you are mine. It's a marriage vow between God and the people of Israel. Pointing ahead to Revelation when Christ returns and has the final victory and the church is the bride of Christ. And Jesus is the perfect husband who brings her into fulfillment. Um, This is also God acknowledging that for the Israelites back in Egypt, their primary identity was slave, was that of slaves. And their primary story was that of fear. God is now saying your primary identity is that of free and your primary story is that of love. He's acknowledging that it takes time to learn freedom. It takes time to learn love. Because God doesn't just set the captives free only to die in the desert. He walks with them as they learn their freedom and their healing. God is a God who walks with us. And so this is just his introduction to the Ten Commandments, which is a framework showing not all the things you can't do, but rather this is what love looks like. This is a framework for love to exist and to flourish. Here are the boundaries necessary for relationship so that you all can flourish because the story that had marked them was that of Pharaoh's, which was that of fear and oppression. And so God is saying, this is what love looks like. Which leads us into the Ten Commandments. All right, so as we look at the Ten Commandments, um, 
it's pretty obvious, if you read over them for a couple minutes, that there are two major categories they fall into. And the first four are that of loving God. And the last six are that of how we love our neighbor. And so as you look at that, it should, if you think, become pretty transparent where that actually comes from. Because when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, to love God and love your neighbor. And it's funny that he gives two answers when he's only asked for what is the greatest commandment because it's a two-part answer. Just like if I said to you, breathe, you wouldn't just breathe in. I mean, I guess you could hold your breath, but that would only last a little while. Eventually, you'd pass out. Um, But you breathe in, and then you breathe out. And so just in the same way, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He answers with breathing, and this is how you breathe in and how you breathe out. Um, And so we'll come back to that in a minute. But as we look at this, um, there are four commands in the first section, and they are pretty interesting in the way they are structured. Um, Most commands are just one verse, one single line. Uh, They're pretty short. But in this first section, there's actually two commands that are several verses long. Um, So we're going to look at why that is. But I'm going to deal with the shorter two first. So the first command is pretty much as clear as it can be. That is that God is God alone. I mean, that's basically it. You can't get much more straightforward than that. And it's a good one to start with because pretty much if you don't agree with that one, then you're not going to agree with most of the rest of the Bible. So sounds like a good commandment to me. Um, So God starts there. And then the third command is also pretty clear. Um, God says his name is to be spoken only in worship. It's not to be used as a curse. Um, It's not to be used as a magic formula for getting your way or influencing other people, um, which would have been very common both then and even now um, if we had some kind of magic like abracadabra, right? So if you said God's name in that way, God's like, no, that's, that's not how this works. You don't just command me to do something and then I do it on your behalf. You can ask just like a relationship, and I may say yes or I may say no, because God's name is still powerful, and that's the point of this, is that it's not um, something that you command, that you speak. It doesn't come from you when you say God's name, just as your breath doesn't come from you. It comes from God. Um, so those are the easier two of the first section. Now, the other two, in my opinion, are a little more fun, um, and they're longer And the reason I think that they're longer is because God recognized, even back then when he was giving them to Moses, that every day people would struggle with these a little more than some of the others. Um, And so with that, the second commandment um, we look at is that we are not to have false idols or pretend gods that we have made for ourselves. And at first glance, that sounds easy, right? Because most of us don't go through life with little keychains or we don't have statues in our house that we praise as a god. Um, And so it seems like we're, oh, we're good. Like, we don't do that. Um, But when we think about it, it actually does incorporate a lot of things that we do on a regular basis. Um, First of which, probably most of us, if we checked in our pockets, we have um, a cell phone. And with that, that can absolutely be something that commands our attention and draws away our love from God. Um, And so that can be an idol for us um, because the the 
idea of an idol is not simply something that we make for ourselves, a, a physical structure made of wood or rock or glass or something, um, but it's anything that pulls our attention away from God. And so with that, um, work can be an idol, um, money can be an idol, even things like perfectionism can be an idol, um, grades can be an idol, um, alcohol can be an idol, um, even something that should be really good, like sex, can be an idol. Um, anything that pulls our attention away from loving God or loving our neighbor well because of the love we have for God can be an idol. Um, and then obviously there are some people in some religions um, that do literally have physical structures, statues, keychains, whatever, that they use um, in their worship. And obviously, since they are idols, they are idols. Um, and so with that, the more important thing here as we understand the second commandment is not all of the things that we shouldn't do. Um, it's understanding that how you prioritize your time is a good indicator of where your loyalties lie and your heart truly lies. And so as we think about it, um, most of these commands have a very um, negative tone, and that's true because they are God commanding us, this is not what you should do. Um, but it's because God is inviting us um, into something deeper. God has said, um, just like Allison said, that you are people who have been stripped of your culture. Um, and so God says, you are lower than low, but I want to invite you into something better. Um, you were outside of the system. You were on the fringe. You were marginalized. You were slaves making bricks. Um, you were oppressed by Pharaoh, but I want to invite you in. I want to give you the keys to the penthouse. I want to show you how to live um, life in such a way that you have history, that you have culture. Um, and so as he does that, this is how God does that, is he invites them into these Ten Commandments or promises um, that if the people will follow him and live in this manner, then he will bless them in the same, same fashion. Um, so the law is not simply a burden that God places on the backs of the Israelites and says, good luck trying to keep these. I want to see you even make it a day. That's not the point of the Ten Commandments. And a lot of times I feel like that's how I used to view them. Um, like it was this thing that Man, there's no, I mean, there's no way, like, especially when you look at the way that Jesus talks about the Ten Commandments. He raises the bar even deeper um, in, in the second section more so than the first. Um, but it's, it's not a burden. It's a, it's a blessing. It's a gift that God has given to us. So, um, as we look at this um, second commandment, the other beautiful thing is that God says, I will punish the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren for those of you who break this. And that seems really intense at first. And you're like, yikes. I mean, we don't even do that now. I mean, when somebody commits, you know, some kind of crazy crime, we don't say, okay, you know, go get your family. They're going to get locked up with you too. And so sorry that your great-grandchildren aren't even born yet, but they're going to be in jail as soon as they are born. Right? And that's not the point of this. It's a comparison because God says three or four generations so I will hold accountable. He says, a thousand generations, though, I will bless. And so God does take sin seriously, and not to downplay that at all, because sin is a serious business. But 300-fold, God reaches out, and his grace goes far beyond our sin in trying to reunite us with himself. Um, so with that, we get to the fourth command. 
And the fourth command is definitely a hard one, and one that probably a lot of us have tried to figure out ways to, to get around. Um, it is to honor the Sabbath. Um, and with that, it is pretty straightforward. I mean, the actual command itself is pretty much that, that short. It says, honor the, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. But then there are these three much longer verses which are added in for emphasis. Um, God tries to help us understand a little deeper what he's talking about there. Um, he says that you're to, re- to work for six days and to rest for one whole day. Um, he says that this includes every person and creature, right? Your maids, your donkeys, everything. That nobody is to be working on this day. That it's not just, you know, you, the, the affluent, upper-class people. You, oh, but you slaves, you keep working. No, this is the entire creation is to rest together and they're to do so in worship, right? It's a day that is to be set apart and to be made holy with God. Um, he even then goes on in the last verse of this commandment to say that this is how he did it, that when God made creation, he took six days and he worked, and then he took one day and he rested. And so he has set up that same structure, and that's where the Sabbath comes from. Um, is in creation in Genesis. And so when God um, says this, the reason that he says it is because in the Genesis account, on that last day, that is when human, humanity, people are made. And so then the first day that humans exist is a day of rest. And so we rest and then we go into work. So God says, I want you to rest and to be filled with me and then I want you to go out and work. So rest, then work. And most of us do the opposite. We try to pull 12, 15, 18, 20 hour days, right? And we get up really early, so we have time to work out before we go to work, and then we work for a while, then we get home and we do just a couple more things, and we have a meeting here, a meeting there, and then we finally get ourselves to bed. We're over-caffeinated the entire time, and like I say, the way we were able to do some extra work is getting stuff done while we're in the car on our way there. Um, but the beauty of this command to rest and then work is that we don't have to bear the burden. It's that God has blessed us with his presence and that the way we will be able to multiply and the way we'll be able to um, get productivity is not through us. And that's not our measure. Um, our identity is to be found in resting in his presence, right? Not some future promise of something that we might get if we work really hard. Maybe we'll get that promotion or that next thing or be able to retire at 25 or whatever. Um, but God's present tense is why he's able to bless us as we rest constantly in him. Um, And so this command is a radical shift for most of us. Um, And it is an oppressive culture, not just of fear, but the fear of missing out, of being able to say that this is something that I want to be able to do, that I want to produce. And God says it's not about what you produce, it's about who you are, that I already love you, period. And it doesn't matter whether you have a six-figure salary or a you know, 10-bedroom house or whatever, right? That God loves us because he made us, right? He loves us because he loves us.
and that's it, no matter what, no questions asked. So we have to decide every day whether we are going to operate under the oppression of fear or whether we're going to rest in God's love. So rest and then work. Um, a wise woman said to me recently, um, if the devil can't make you sin, then he'll make you busy. And so in that, that is exactly what this commandment is looking at, is are we going to rest or are we going to be busy? Are we going to constantly seek more of ourselves? Um, so the first four commandments, if we were to simplify them, are that God is God, to love God more than anything else, to worship God when you call his name, and not to use it as something else, a curse or a magic word or whatever, and to rest and then work. So basically, love God and then rest in him. So the other six commandments are all single-verse commands. Now, some of them have a little bit extra length in their verses, but they're all single verses, so they're a little bit more straightforward. And honestly, that's because all of them are rooted in the first four. So if you love God, then it is really easy to love your neighbor, right? If you understand that your identity and everyone's identity is in God and is loved because of God, then it's easy to look at someone who you don't like and say, well, you know, God loves them. I might as well, right? It becomes a lot easier. And so with that, um, the commandments are, verse 12 is, honor your father and mother. Simple enough. And then it even attaches, so that you may live long. Probably, I've heard it said, that's because if you don't honor your father and mother, that it won't go well with you, right? Um, but that's just a joke. Um, <laughs> um, but so with that, to honor your father and mother is still a serious command. Right? And that doesn't mean that every time that your parents say to do something, right, that they just have the ultimate authority over you, and so they are allowed to dictate everything, every single item and action in your life. But you are supposed to try to honor them. Um, the command, you shall not murder. Again, pretty straightforward. Basically, don't kill. But again, if you look at what Jesus says, he says not only is it don't murder, but don't be angry. If you have had anger in your heart, I tell you it's the same as if you had murdered. And so with that, if you look at how Jesus restructures these six commands, basically he says, love God, actually love people the way people are loved by God. And so it's pretty much those first four commands, and then the next six are just explicit things for them to recognize. Um, he says, you should not commit adultery. That's because marriage is important. Pretty straightforward. We've only been married a couple months, but I think it's pretty good. Um, he says, you shall not steal. And that's because, again, stealing comes from this place of saying, I don't have enough. I need more. I need, I need something else that I don't have. And God says, I'm going to bless you. If you just trust me, I'm here with you. I'm providing everything that you need. And so when we get out of that place, when we don't love God and don't trust God, then we say, all right, well, I need to do this thing for myself. And if that means stealing, so be it. And so again, it's rooted in those first four. Um, don't give false witness or testimony. Basically, don't lie about someone else. And this seems really simple, right? Again, well, I've never been asked to testify about my neighbor, so I've never broken this command. 
But, again, if we think about it, as we're sitting down at lunch or as, you know, someone calls up and says, did you see what Julia was wearing the other day? That, again, you're talking about someone's character, and so you're testifying, witnessing against them, right? So, not to speak harshly against people, but you have to love your neighbor because God loves them and loves you. Um, and then the last one, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, and you shall not cover his wife, covet his wife, um, his servants, his animals, or anything that belongs to him. And I think, again, it's funny, God goes extra far. He could have just said, do not covet, but he wanted to make sure, so he covered everything that he could think of, his house, his wife, his servants, both male and female, his ox, his donkey, and then he says again, or just anything in general at all that your neighbor has, just don't covet, period. Right? He makes it really explicitly clear. Again, because I'm going to provide for you. So when you say, man, you know, the Joneses have such a nice car, God's like, so who cares? You know, you don't, can't see this because you're not God, but I'm going to give you a nicer car six months from now. So don't covet their car. It's okay. I, I got you right here. You're good. Stay with me. But then we go over here and we try to do things for ourselves. And then God's like, well, I was going to bless you, but now you done messed it up. So, all right. So with that, um, these commandments are basically the core part of who we are as Christians. Um, they are to love God. And the second six are to live out both discipleship and mission. You might say to love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. So, pretty straightforward. Um, and all of them come from a place of being able to be rested and filled up with God and then going out and loving others. Um, the last section here, chapter or verse 18, begins this final section, and it's kind of a fun one, uh, personally for me at least. Um, the people are there, and they see God, or they see the cloud that God is in, and they hear the voice of God, and immediately they have fear. And so as they look out, they say to Moses, okay, um, you go over there, we're going to stay over here because we, have, we don't want to be part of that. And that's not out of a completely ridiculous place because there are plenty of instances in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, when people accidentally touched God or bumped into something that was holy and were immediately struck dead. And so they're like, Yep, we've seen what happens when you get too close to God. So, Moses, if you want to risk it, go for it. You can tell us what God said, but we're going to stay over here. And Moses says, do not be afraid or do not fear. But then immediately thereafter, he says, he's here to test you so that you will have the fear of God. And it's like, what? Don't fear, but also have fear. And it's kind of confusing, but also beautiful. And so that's what we're going to look at real quick as we wrap up this section. Um, Moses says, do not be afraid. And this is a command all throughout Scripture. Um, it's actually all throughout um, Joshua explicitly. So if you want to read more about this, Joshua chapter 1, great section, section of Scripture that I love so much, very dear to my heart. Um, but it's also all throughout the Old and New Testament. Um, every time angels appear, they say, don't be afraid, right? And of course, every time angels appear, people are afraid. Right? And so God is constantly saying to his people, both explicitly himself and through the angels and other messengers, don't be afraid. Because it's so natural. 
I mean, if you thought about it, the vastness of God being presented right in front of you and the holiness of God, it's easy to be scared. But God is also inviting us in. So with that, um, Moses knows this because when he came face to face with God at the burning bush, at kind of the beginning, so to speak, of this section of his story, he walks in and God says, take off your sandals for the place where you're at is holy ground. And to us, we're like, yeah, of course, obviously, like you would want to be skin to skin with something holy. You would want to be in this intimate place. Like that makes so much sense. Like I would take my shoes off out of respect, but that's completely upside down, right? Because again, being skin to skin with something holy meant death. It means we're not holy and that is something holy and it overpowers you and kills you. And so when he walks in and God says, take off your shoes, be intimate with me, Moses probably should have said, I don't think so, God. That's a bad idea. I've seen what happens when people do that. But he doesn't. He just obeys, right? And so he's filled with the Spirit in that moment through the same intimacy that he is offering and being offered. Um, and this makes sense. I mean, if you think about it, when you walk in someone's house and you're like for a business meeting, you don't walk in, take your shoes off and sit down, make yourself comfy in their big chair. And you're like, all right, what are we going to talk about? Right. But when you walk into someone's house that you are intimate with, maybe a family member or a friend, right, you come in, pop your shoes off, right, you go look at the refrigerator, see if they got anything good, right, because you're intimate with them. You have, you have a proximity, a relationship, right? And so in the same way, when Jesus sits down for his last meal with the disciples, he takes his shoes off, he gets a towel, wraps it around himself, and says, here, let me take the place of a servant. I'm going to wash your, you guessed it, bare feet and be intimate with you. And it's an exact resemblance back to the burning bush. And it's the same thing right here. God is saying, come and be intimate with me. And people immediately say, no. I mean, that's even what Peter says in the Last Supper. He says, absolutely not, Jesus. You're not washing my feet. If anything, I'm going to wash yours. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. And in the same way, that's what Moses is trying to explain to the people. He says, it's okay. God wants us to come in. He wants to be intimate with us. He wants to walk with us. He wants us to be full of his presence. Now, you do need reverence, fear of God in order to have wisdom and to have love and have respect and have relationship, right? Just like you wouldn't walk into your parents' house and be like, hey, well, you know, what's up, pops? Right? I mean, maybe you would, but I certainly wouldn't, right? Because you have to, there's a certain level of, yes, you have relationship, but you still have a reverence, Right? Just because you have a relationship doesn't immediately make you equals. Right? We're not equal with God, but we do have a relationship with God. Um, and so you don't need to be afraid of him, but you do need to have fear. So um, with that, the biggest thing here for the people and for us is that you cannot, just cannot, love and fear simultaneously. Because fear is this oppressive thing. Right, just like Pharaoh. I mean, that's where this whole story starts. Is Moses, or Pharaoh had fear. Moses did not. And because Moses was filled with love, he comes in with God and says, no, let the people go and worship. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm afraid. And so fear 
always pushes us and keeps us at arm's distance. And love always brings us in. And the ten plagues that we see are the opposite, kind of the undoing, their Pharaoh's way of dealing with things, right? It's that kind of covetous, I want this thing, so I'm going to try to do it for myself, and he ruins it, right? Instead of, I mean, when Joseph was in Egypt, God blessed Egypt like crazy because he was there and he was with them. But when God pulls back away from them because Pharaoh says, I'm going to do this thing, God says, okay, if that's what you want, and then obviously we get the ten plagues. And so with that, the ten commandments are the reversal of the ten plagues, right? They go kind of point for point, and they say, all right, this is how you destroyed yourself in your culture. Now here's how I'm going to lift you up, all right? So love always drives out fear, and we can be intimate with God. So love God and love your neighbor. So as I said earlier, um, this is a direct parallel and kind of foreshadowing of Pentecost, um, the Christian Pentecost, which is based off of the Jewish Pentecost. In Jeremiah 31, God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the, the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And this is foreshadowing the coming of the Holy Spirit, which was poured out on all the believers on the day of Pentecost um, after Jesus was crucified, uh, then resurrected, and then ascended into heaven. Because now with the new covenant and the new law, we don't just have the forgiveness of sins. We're not just freed from the, uh, from the slavery of sin and death. God walks with us into our healing and our freedom. God teaches us how to be free and how to be a people marked by love. He doesn't just leave us in the desert to die, newly freed slaves. He walks with us as we learn our healing and walk out our healing. And there's grace enough for us to mess up. Perfectionism is a lie. We'll never be perfect, but there's grace. There is healing. There is hope. We move closer and closer towards living the lives of saints through the power of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit empowers us to live the lives of saints. God doesn't just forgive our sins. He empowers us to live holy lives. He walks with us into healing and wholeness and holiness. And all that he asks is that we ask him to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
In Luke 11, it says that if we ask, we shall receive. And it goes on to say that God the Father will pour out his Holy Spirit if we ask him for it. After we accept Jesus into our lives, part of the Christian walk is asking for the Holy Spirit to fill us up daily so that we can grow closer and closer to God, grow closer and closer to that reflection of Jesus. And so my challenge for y'all this week and for weeks to come is to ask daily for the Holy Spirit to fill you. It might mean that you're going to go through a season of emptying. That's really painful and hard to walk out, but that's the Lord healing you of deep wounds and emptying you of the things that are keeping you from him. But if you persist in prayer, the Lord will fill you with the Holy Spirit and empower you to live a life of healing and wholeness and holiness.